0: It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. What a program for you today. In the first segment, I speak with noted Pennsylvania gun lawyer, Dylan Harris, who talks about the downstream effect of the U.S. Supreme Court decision on the Second Amendment. And that includes bans on AR-15s, uh, magazine sizes, sizes of weaponry you can use. Very interesting conversation because potentially it is huge, What it means, where it could go, and will these changes happen fast, that discussion coming up. Then after that, the topic is the acquittal of a man by the name of Joey Gibson, a Portland area activist who is the bane of Antifa in Portland's existence for some reason. Now, could there be justice in Portland with this acquittal? After hundreds and hundreds of riots in the Portland area and very few people getting prosecuted, could it be? We will tell you about that as well. So stick around for that on the Adult of the Room podcast. (music) The Supreme Court's Bruin gun decision has teed up a big change in the nation's gun laws. Not just being able to carry on your person, but uh, because of your need to bear arms, but no. Other aspects of the law, of stuff about guns, is going to change, probably. It's an aspect of the law that I believe is underappreciated at this point, And I've been collecting reactions to the Bruin decision from gun attorneys throughout the country for my... PJ Media article on it that's forthcoming. And and what happens now after Clarence Thomas's majority opinion in this case? And so I got directed by Andrew Branca, of all wonderful people, to talk to Dylan Harris, who's an attorney with the Pennsylvania group known as the Firearms Industry Consulting Group, a division of civil rights defense firm, PC. And his law firm was recommended to me by the law of self-defense, Andrew Branca, whom, of course, is a friend of the program and a friend of mine for many, many years, and professionally speaking. Well, So here we are. The ruling fundamentally changes the legal landscape for gun laws, says Hannah Hill, the director of research and policy at the National Foundation for Gun Rights. And, you know, it's been it's taken a while to hear somebody actually say that. And, Dylan, how in heaven's name would this change gun laws uh, pertaining to mm, ammo, magazine size, bump stocks, all the other things that Uh, Folks who don't like guns like to put on gun owners.
1: Thanks for having me on, Victoria. So basically what happened is the Bruin decision Justice Thomas laid out uh, and explained in detail the new test uh, that courts are going to be using to evaluate laws uh, relating to the Second Amendment. In 2008, after the Heller decision, uh, appellate courts started implementing a two-test or a two-step test, uh, generally falling under intermediate scrutiny. Uh, which basically, the the first step of the test was the court asking whether uh, the law at issue impinged on uh, conduct protected by the Second Amendment, and then if it did, the second step, the court looked to whether uh, that conduct and whether that regulation uh, was substantially related to the achievement of an important governmental interest, which is the intermediate scrutiny standard. Uh, and courts, uh, as Justice Thomas points out in the Bruin decision, were frequently deferring to the legislatures on those questions. Uh, so the Bruin decision... Uh, Justice Thomas laid out that no, courts shouldn't be using this two-step test and intermediate scrutiny at all. What they should be using is basically a historical analysis test. So I've got a quote here that sums it up really quickly that I'll just read. Uh Uh, So Justice Thomas stated, When the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. The government must then justify its regulation by demonstrating that it is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. Only then may a court conclude that the individual's conduct falls outside the Second Amendment's unqualified command. So the new test is basically going to be a historical analysis. It's not going to be scrutiny at all.
0: Is that going to get us into, well, they didn't have bump stocks back in 1776 and uh, 1787, when the, or is it 89, when the Constitution was finally approved by all the states. So therefore, it's not something we can do now. I mean, we do have uh, Governor Hochul, for example, saying that, you know, we need to be using the old timey weapons of war back in the day. <laughs>
1: Yeah, Justice Thomas saw that issue coming, uh, and the Bruin decision also uh, tries to head that off, basically explaining that it's not a, a one-to-one comparison of what, fire, what types of firearms they had at the time to what types of firearms we have now. It's a, an analogical uh, type of evaluation mm-hmm. where you're applying some of the principles of old to the circumstances of now. Uh, So it's not going to be so cut and dry. We didn't have bump stocks then. We can ban them now. Um, And I think some of those issues are going to come to the forefront relatively soon, as we've seen with New York enacting a very very expansive definition of sensitive places.
0: Oh, really? Uh, Which
1: Justice Thomas also addressed in his decision and will come into a clear focus soon.
0: Yes. So sensitive places, as he acknowledged in his opinion, were were places like government buildings and or schools or other things. But you still have to justify those decisions. And it doesn't mean that you just the entire uh, I think he said the entire island of Manhattan would not be something that would qualify as a uh, sensitive place. but. So what is New York now doing?
1: Uh, so I, I'm not licensed in New York. I haven't been over their new proposed law in great detail. Uh, but I know they ran through a, a piece of legislation uh, basically defining what sensitive places are. And it's very uh, generous. Uh, I believe <laughs> it includes such places as the subway system. Uh, oh. I think it includes some or all parks. Um, So it's very broad. uh, And I have no doubt that some of the other states uh, that suffered a defeat following Bruin uh, will probably try to adapt something similar in the future. Yeah, uh, that'll likely be one of the the fronts in the coming battle.
0: You know, definitely something that should be included in sensitive areas, sensitive places by the New York State legislatures lights and the and the uh, governor Hochul is uh, grocery stores because clearly grocery stores are places where uh, it's you know inherently dangerous to be um, and uh, I'm just joking about that in a very sad sad way and uh, and the reason I'm doing that is because uh, apparently that didn't stop somebody from traveling halfway across the state to go shoot up some people at a grocery store in uh, I guess it was uh, uh, upstate New York. It's absurd. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely absurd. Uh, there's no way to preclude people from taking guns who want to do some harm. So do something else, New York.
1: Yep. Yep. And sooner or later, they're going to have to. Uh, I imagine uh, NYSERPA will continue to uh, fight these kinds of issues over time, and we'll have to see uh, what the appellate courts do next uh, right. Shortly after Bruin Was decided the Supreme Court Issued GVR decisions And several other pending mm. cases Which stands for grant Vacate and remand uh, So the court granted certiorari Vacated the lower court decisions And remanded it for uh, Proceedings in light of the new Bruin decision. So a lot of those cases are going to go down. They'll be relitigated at either the circuit or the district court levels. Uh, and then we'll get some some new decisions and see, see where the circuits come out.
0: I know that uh, Chuck Michelle, uh, who's... Uh, big gun guy, uh, the pistol, uh, the uh, Southern California Pistol and Rifle Association and uh, Oregon Firearms Federation. They've looked at these, the GVRs. And I looked at a couple of them just to determine the kinds of issues they covered. What did they cover? Did they cover things that you do with guns, things that you put on guns, places you can go with guns? How are those impacted?
1: So I'm not familiar with what all of them were. Uh, I think one of them may have been a Ninth Circuit case relating to uh, assault weapons. Oh. Um, there may be some related to magazine capacity issues out of California as well. Good. Um, so I'm not familiar with what all of them are, but I think those are a couple of the issues that are going to be in front of uh, some of the, the, either the district courts, if they go back that far, depending on what the circuits do uh, or the circuit courts.
0: Some groups are going on the offensive if they're not granted the uh, full rights of being able to use your firearm, which, you know, let's talk about the AR-15 or guns like it. And that those kinds of laws, those laws that uh, states have uh, passed that essentially, like California has, outlawed AR-15s, that would be reopened under this decision, Correct.
1: If there's pending litigation, um, that would likely be uh, the, the purpose of the, the GVR. So, if that was one of the right. issues uh, that was sent back down, or if there's pending litigation, depending on the stages of it, uh, Bruin could be, you know, usually you'd file a notice of supplemental authority to the court to make them aware of the Bruin decision. Uh, the court may request additional briefing or oral argument on those issues. Um, it, Generally, if litigation has ended, a decision is issued, there are some circumstances within a certain period of time where it could be reopened, and it varies by court and jurisdiction. Um, But it may be the case that new lawsuits need to be started up in some of the the areas rather than reopening old ones.
0: As... Hannah Hill, the director of research and policy at National Foundation for Gun Rights, said this is going to have massive implications. It's a radical test. And if applied accurately, it will have radical results. A lot of gun laws will not be able to withstand Second Amendment scrutiny. We can only hope. What do you think?
1: Uh, So I don't know that I agree that it's a radical test. Ah. Uh, I think that Heller really proposed something like this and announced something like this uh, and specifically rejected scrutiny tests. But the appellate courts never really took into that. And they just kind of did what they wanted for the last thumb their nose up. They thumb
0: their nose at that decision. That's it.
1: what it really seemed like. And so after this decision – Justice Thomas has just restated in much greater detail exactly what the lower courts are to do. Uh, But uh, on the the second part of that question, I do think this is going to have some significant impact, and I think we're likely going to use it to gain a lot of ground uh, in some states that have taken especially some of the much more novel and onerous uh, types of regulation. Uh, As one example – uh, I think micro stamping is going to be very difficult for uh, some of these states to uh, adapt and enforce that kind of a requirement.
0: What what is that like? Putting a serial number on every single uh, piece of the gun and your ammo and all that stuff.
1: Yeah. So the the theory behind micro stamping litigation is to require new newly manufactured firearms. Uh, To have the capability To imprint that Firearms serial number Onto a shell casing When the gun is fired Uh, And the the theory Is that the government wants to be able To match the serial number That the gun imprints onto the shell Casing to a firearm But as far as I'm aware the technology Just isn't there Uh, Notwithstanding the other Constitutional issues relating to Registration and all of that. But I think that kind of a a regulatory requirement is going to be extremely difficult to sustain, uh, if not impossible under this kind of historical test.
0: Very interesting. The issue of ghost guns, and frankly, I don't even know what those are, except I think it's just guns that somebody's filed away the serial number on. I mean, does that impact that at all or uh, anything else that you can think of?
1: I think it will. And it anything, it really, this is going to impact everything. Uh, it's a little too soon for us to tell exactly how everything's going to shake out, but all of the circuit court decisions that have been based on a two-step test yeah. are now basically up in the air to be either reopened if they're recent enough or readdressed by new litigation without that necessary necessarily controlling precedent uh, backing them up. Uh, on the ghost guns issue, you know, it's the same thing. The courts are going to have to apply this new, uh, or I guess this not new, but newly reannounced announced uh, historical analysis test. Uh, and in the context of, of ghost guns, you know, manufacturing your own firearms uh, in the privacy of your own home.
0: Is that what it's those gonna are? It's going
1: to be tough to sustain... Yeah, generally, uh, you know, every every uh, journalist or government agency's definition is a little bit different. Oh, but oh, geez. the theory well, that's is, helpful. it's <laughs> some kind of home manufactured firearm that doesn't have a serial number that they know of, um,
0: like a three D printer. It,
1: uh, yeah, a three D printer, an eighty percent lower, you know, whatever it is, it's something that a a licensed manufacturer didn't manufacture for commercial purposes. Uh, it's something done by a, a private individual. Um, so so we'll, we'll see. And it depends, you know, if they're banned versus if they're just regulated in some way. Uh, it's going to be applied to each law uh, in each jurisdiction as the lawsuits come.
0: So then right after this decision, The U.S. Senate, or was it right before, right around the same time, the U.S. Senate, with the help of Republicans who should know better, decided they'd pass a sweeping gun law, which would uh, change the definition of what a a, a gun seller is and would change uh, uh, all kinds of things with respect to gun ownership. Does this have any impact, this this Supreme Court decision, have any impact on the Senate law?
1: Uh. just on its own, the decision being issued doesn't directly impact it. Uh, because the, the decision, none of the aspects of that federal law were at issue in the decision. Um, now, if the federal law is challenged in, in a lawsuit, then it'll absolutely apply because this is the, the new standard that that law would be held to. Uh, and some of the, the new, Definition as to what a person who's engaged in the business of uh, buying or selling firearms uh, may be pretty difficult to uphold if it's just, you know, any person looking to make a pecuniary gain on the sale of a firearm. Right.
0: You you can sell guns, you just can't make any money. So you're taking profit motive out of it, which is essentially what it it, sounded like they were trying to do.
1: Yeah, it seems like you could make money, but making money on the sale couldn't be your intention of making yeah. the sale oh, how that gets enforced in practice uh we all know won't be favorable to uh, our industry but um, that's the 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 language of it
0: red flag laws those laws are specifically when well, we don't we don't want mentally crazy people to get guns uh, i think we or any other weapon for that matter i don't want them hauling rocks to a protest. I don't want them, you know, using a knife to go after somebody and neither do I want them to use a gun. But nevertheless, I can only imagine that some people will be red flagged as a result of this uh, senatorial attempt to increase the number of states with red flag laws. That goes right to Second Amendment use, doesn't it? Red flag laws?
1: I think it it does, but it's I think it's almost more of a fourth amendment issue than it is a second amendment issue. Uh, and to that extent, it's it's also a bit of a first amendment issue as well because red flag laws, typically uh, the structure of them includes some list of criteria that a court can use to evaluate whether a person should have their firearms removed. And usually on that list is You know, have they purchased a firearm recently? Do they have access to firearms? So you're getting at the Second Amendment issues. Uh, Sometimes you have things like, have they uh, made threatening statements on social media or anything like that? So there's First Amendment, there's Second Amendment issues. And then, of course, there are Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment issues with uh, how these firearms are being searched for and seized. Uh, whether or not this person gets the protections of due process, uh, through the process, which they typically don't, at least in the, the initial stages, there's almost always an ex parte, which means uh, without the presence of the accused, Um Uh, provisions in these laws. And then you have the Sixth Amendment, you know, ex parte, again, you have no right (laughs) to counsel because you have uh, no ability to be present or even aware of the hearing occurring.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: So I do think this decision's, yeah, I do think this decision is going to apply Uh, in the context of red flag laws also. But I think there are a bevy of other constitutional issues uh, with those types of laws that, you know, hopefully should lead to their downfall as well.
0: One attendant thing that uh, a gun attorney in Washington state told me, and that is, it's it's an interesting distinction. Most of the red flag hearings are people who are brought before a civil court, Not a criminal court. So therefore, your constitutional right to face your accuser, cross-examine, be able to take the Fifth Amendment, uh, your right to an attorney, unfair uh, searches and seizures, and all the other stuff, the right to free speech, etc. Those are out the window because it's a civil proceeding, not a criminal proceeding. Well, the criminal law things, you always have your right to uh, free speech and stuff, but... I But not just Second Amendment, apparently. What do you make of that?
1: Yeah, so uh, again, it, it's coming back to the same issues with the constitutionality of red flag laws. And they're different everywhere they end up being enacted, but they generally follow that, bl- that blueprint. You don't have a right to be present at the first hearing. You don't have a right to confront your accuser at the first hearing. You can't refute the allegations at all. The judge gets one side of the story uh, and then acts on that side of the story. And statistics and studies have shown that, especially in the context of uh, allegations of domestic violence, judges are extremely likely in an ex parte uh, hearing to issue the requested protective order. uh, And I think studies will show with red flags order, red flag orders as well as we get information and statistics relating to those. Because no judge wants to be the one who said no, and then something happens.
0: Yeah, I I get that. We've seen so many of these terrible cases recently.
1: Right. But the potential for abuse in that process is immense. Yeah. Uh, And there need to be better protections for the due process rights, due process rights of individuals, Uh, and red flag laws just don't allow for it.
0: You know, I was at the doctor the other day, and- I was telling her what kinds of medications I was on because I, I've just come through COVID, and some of them were the medications that some people would not necessarily approve of, if you know what I mean, hint, hint, wink, wink. And I came away from that meeting. Of course, she, she had utter disdain for me. This is our first meeting, so that, that was going over real well. And I thought to myself, oh, She's one of those red flag doctors. Bet you 20 bucks she's, ah, she's a Trump supporter. And she takes those, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod medications. And I would not hesitate to call her up. If, I, if she asked me if I had firearms, I would have just lied. Because I don't trust her. I mean, this, yeah. is, what's, this is what we've come to. I mean, we've got uh, Supreme Court justices being uh, attacked. We've got... Uh, people whom the left doesn't like being, uh, you know, the SWAT teams sent after them being swatted. I mean, it's just, just I don't, I don't, I don't trust these people. I don't trust people with red, red these red flag laws. I don't. I don't mean yep. to sound. I don't mean to sound cr- like I'm a conspiracy theorist. I'm merely suggesting to you that which has already played itself out in the public square. And we know they will be misused. Absolutely. Yep.
1: Yep. Yep. And I firmly believe that they're unconstitutional. Uh, and hopefully, time and legal challenges will bear that out.
0: When are we going to get the entire circuit, all of the different circuits of, I don't know how many there are, but there are many, where they agree okay, you know. 30 round magazines. We're saying you can only have 10 round magazines for whatever gun you have. Okay, that's illegal because it's unconstitutional, because it impedes a person's ability to exercise their second member rights. When are we going to get full nationwide circuit acclamation about this?
1: Unfortunately, I don't think we will. Uh, I think in the long term, it'll probably take uh, this may be a little bit uh, cynical of me to think, but I think in the long term, it'll probably take another Supreme Court decision. Oh, gosh. Uh, I, I, I'm really? confident that many of the circuits will likely come to that conclusion. But uh, a unanimous uh, agreement, I guess, by all, the, all of the circuits, I think, is pretty unlikely.
0: Well, you'll still have – I guess what we'll have to wait for is the circuit split. That should take – Point two seconds with the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals probably weighing in at any moment on the next Mm -hmm. lawsuit. Are you guys prepping a lawsuit by any chance or several?
1: Uh, We're not at the moment. We've got a couple that are pending uh, that have just uh, basically restarted activity uh, that have been stayed pending the Bruin decision that we're now getting briefing orders in. uh, But we're not cooking up anything new at the moment.
0: Cooking up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, well, well Not on. in this vein, at least. I, I, I appreciate you coming on and talking a little bit about that. I'm sure there are a million things that I have not covered in our discussion today. And I would like to know if I've missed anything, please tell me so that my listeners can know as well.
1: I think we really hit the big ones. Uh, for all those listening out there, uh, now is the time for us to go on the offensive. I just want to remind everybody it's extremely important for you to get out and vote, for you to uh, support your uh, local and state and the federal advocacy organizations who are bringing these lawsuits. They are time consuming and they are expensive. uh, And all of these organizations could use your support. Mm
0: -hmm. Who do you guys support? I mean, you guys have an organization, obviously, but to you, are you like the Second Amendment Foundation where you're a 501c3? But you guys are for profit, right?
1: Yeah, we're a for-profit firm. We've litigated a lot with Firearms Policy Coalition, with Firearms Owners Against Crime, uh, here in Pennsylvania. Um, there are other groups as well that we've not worked with directly, uh, or have have filed very similar lawsuits against with uh, against similar parties. Uh, so it, it all works out in the end, but those are the two big ones that we work with okay. uh, on a relatively regular basis that have been plaintiffs.
0: And I know Andrew Bronco likes you guys, so I guess I guess you must be okay, Dylan Harris. <laughs> uh, he's uh, with Firearms Industry Consulting Group, a division of Civil Rights Defense Firm PC. And one more thing: one time I was on TV talking about a particular group that is among well, you know, the NRA, which is a, a, the first technically the first civil rights group i think that's out been out there in american history and uh they they sort of demur to about that whatever but um it but it's a bit generally true and i had the host ask me well uh civil rights what do you mean and i said well you know the second amendment that's a civil right <laughs> people don't even recognize that yeah. that's how sad that was <laughs> yeah Honest to God. yeah uh, People need to. It's not a second class yep. right, as Justice Thomas pointed out.
1: Yeah. And then you have groups like the ACLU that are a civil rights uh organization that conveniently don't really interact all that much with this one.
0: Yeah. That's right. They don't like the Second Amendment very much, do they? Alas, Dylan Harris, thanks so much for coming on the Adult in the Room podcast. It's been a pleasure. James Buchel is one of Joey Gibson's attorneys in a three-year-long battle to bring some semblance to the People's Republic of Portland, Just Us system. After Portland voters hired the George Soros woke DA, crime escalated to record levels and prosecutions just dropped off a cliff. Hundreds of Antifa members were never charged for their part in the 200 plus days of rioting, looting, fire setting, hitting cops, assaulting officers, hurting them and sending them to the hospital. Those who were prosecuted had their charges dropped. Seventy percent of the people charged in connection with that so-called summer of love after George Floyd's death were let off in Portland, Oregon. Now, after the Mike Strickland case, which we go over through that whole case with you on the first few episodes of the Adult in the Room podcast, please go back and listen. And with the cases of Andy No, who has been attacked multiple times as he's attempted to report on Antifa, which we highlight in interviews with him on a couple of episodes. I mean, no one thought Portland was a place where one possibly right of center could get justice. But Gibson was acquitted on charges of riot in Portland, Oregon, of all places. He was accused and charged with riot by the Multnomah County District Attorney's Office. And what was the riot charge root cause? Hmm. Well, after an Antifa member spit on Gibson and other people in his Patriot Prayer group, Gibson wiped off the woman's spit on a comrade's shirt. That was the riot. Of course, it did nothing of the kind. Now, listen to this excerpt of the so called riot, according to prosecutors, from YouTube videographer, I know him, Nate, uh, but he's also known publicly as Stubtown Matters. And oops, there is potty talk. It ensues. Grab the Kevlar earmuffs if you're offended. Listen up. <laughs> This is the spitter talking to Joey Gibson. And he's saying it's a public sidewalk, which of course it is. It's
1: hey, a public sidewalk. Hey! Hey! It's Santee football right
0: here. So hey. check it out. Damascus! Damascus, you little fucking fat. Look, look, look. Look at me. Andy Noah is also there. Right here, bitch. No is recording this
2: for his writing. Come down. Come down. Come down. Look Hey, You You nothing, right? You want
1: another Go ahead. It's
0: So they're job owning, And then someone unmasks the spitter and she gets up in the grill of some, a black member of Patriot Prayer, you know, the racists. Uh, They're threatening Gibson and he goes, okay, do something then. And he wipes off the spitting on another yeah, guy's I mean, uh, gonna, and everyone laughs. All Antifa laughs. Oh, Who saw this,
2: it? Guys spit I, 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 now
0: you All right, you get the picture. It's a mess. It's a bit of a melee, but it's not a riot, not even close. And So there were lots of witnesses there. As I mentioned, Andy No was there that day taking video of this event because it's May 1st. It's the High Holy Day for Antifa. And and so uh, got word, of course, that uh, Gibson was going to go over to Cider Riot. That's right. The Antifa Hangout is called Cider Riot. It is now defunct. It is closed. And uh, it should be closed. It's not very nice, but what can I tell you? I couldn't make any money because what happens? Anarchists, apparently they don't pay. Be that as it may, James Buckel was one in the federal appeals court for Joey Gibson. And he was in the courtroom and he helped acquit Gibson of riot. That was not a riot. And as I say, we will put the video in the show notes from Stumptown Matters to be able to show you that portion of this uh, so-called riot that the prosecutors claim occurred and that they charged Joey Gibson with and for which he was acquitted. All right, enjoy my conversation with James Buckel. It occurred while he was waiting for yet another verdict. So it's a little choppy and he drops out every once in a while because he's near the Portland courthouse. And uh, enjoy what you can. Thank you. So tell me what happened in court and what you were arguing in this case and the response that you have to the acquittal for your client. I mean, is this a change in Portland justice? I don't know. Um, you know, as
2: you know, we moved for a judgment of acquittal saying that the evidence wasn't sufficient. This is essentially an argument that we've tried to been Trying to present for three years and tried to present in federal court, which was that Mr. Gibson had not engaged in violent and tumultuous conduct within the meaning of the riot statute and that the prosecution was essentially a politically driven exercise to chill his First Amendment rights. And the judge was of the view that he was handicapped because there weren't procedures in Oregon law that would let him resolve this until the time of the trial. Uh, which is one of the reasons we went to federal court and were disappointed there because they decided to abstain in favor of the state proceedings.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And we finally got to the point where the judge could look at the evidence and say, yeah, there's there's essentially nothing there that approaches the level of riot.
0: So, so finally, uh, you've got... Um joey uh, being acquitted of this this case are you going to pursue this any further now that you have an acquittal in this case would you be going for example to federal court again to put forward the idea about free speech and the way that atifa has always tried to stifle free speech
2: well i think there has been a conspiracy to deprive him of his civil rights Uh, And I think that various elements of the power structure in Portland have been involved in that, particularly the district attorney, District Attorney Schmidt, who essentially violated his own policy, saying he presumptively wouldn't pursue riot charges when Mr. Gibson was concerned. So I think I think there's something there. It's a complicated area with uh, various sort of immunities for public officials that we have to research. Uh, I think it's something that I expect Mr. Schultz and Mr. Gibson will have an interest in. It's, of course, up to them what they want to do. But the law may provide a remedy in these circumstances because they dragged these people through the mud for three years um, for essentially no reason at all. And as you may be aware, the judge, particularly with respect to Mr. Schultz, you know, declared that he was, exact, he was bewildered why the district attorney was pursuing the case. Uh, he shouldn't have been. We explained why. But... Uh, In a world where everyone is very polite to one another and doesn't accuse each other of bad faith, uh, Mm. when they're, you know, in that power structure, I can understand why he said what he said.
0: And he went after the DA, uh, not by name, but he did mention the institutional office of the district attorney. And of course, Mike Schmidt is a George Soros lackey, a woke DA, and a man who is not someone who gives jurisprudence out equally. Um, So... The judge said, I am somewhat bewildered that the state has driven this case to the point, to this point, despite having all the evidence in this case, all the video in its possession for years. That's not a fling at the individual prosecutors, who I know to be men of enormous integrity, etc. But as an institution, the district attorney's office decision to push this case to trial is surprising, given the state of the evidence. What was the state of the evidence?
2: Well, there wasn't any, and that's 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 the point. And and I think you know, as late as it was, I have to commend Judge Suedi for essentially having the courage to say the emperor has no clothes. Because as you know in the story, there's not very many people who are willing to say that the emperor has no clothes when we're talking about the emperor. But Judge Suedi was.
0: You had said in your arguments and your um to in your motion for acquittal. That Gibson was there, he was showing his video, and I've watched every second of Joey Gibson's video, and I never did understand how in ho- how in heaven's name they could have charged him with riot because he didn't cause one, nor did he participate in one. Uh, nevertheless, not knowing the permutations of the law, I appreciated the fact that maybe we'd get to the point of it, and I knew you were the right guy to do it, but you said that this had a lot to do with free speech, and the fact that Joey Gibson was there to show uh, the dis- to show what the root of the disorder in downtown Portland is, as applied in these circumstances, we are unreasonably chilling freedom of speech. And the judge would not let you, I mean, even though you did have quite a a uh, colloquy with him about it, you mean you uh, you were not allowed to bring up free speech much.
2: Well, what he meant by that, let me defend him in this way. We had already had the argument on jury instructions, and the free speech argument had carried the in the jury instructions. So the jury, the judge had already decided as a matter of law that nothing that Mr. Gibson said or his expressive conduct that day could be part of the evidence constituting riot. So what he was saying, in some sense, is I've already decided that you won that part. You know, let's focus on what's left.
0: Mm-hmm. So you had won that argument that it was a stifling of free speech then prior to that in uh, that. Uh, seriously, <laughs> not that I'd won that argument. We had we had
2: characterized the arguments when you are evaluating the charge of riot, you have to pull out all the conduct that's the speech and the expressive conduct and the context and the reaction of, you know, the people that you're talking to, that's the free speech part. And Mm -hmm. then all you have left then is if we look at the physical acts, you know, walking onto the sidewalk, Mm -hmm. um, holding some Antifa woman back who's attacking you, are these physical acts, you know, sufficiently violent and tumultuous to constitute riot? And by the time we got to the argument that you're talking about, that's what was left. And he was essentially saying, you don't need to go into all that old stuff already. We've decided it. Oh, I it. see.
0: Okay. Um, okay. So did you hesitate to go before a jury? Um, because I know how that has not necessarily worked out for people on the right before. I'm speaking specifically of, of Mike Strickland. And uh, he went before a judge um, and the jury was so poisoned so I feel feel that maybe Mr. Lewis might be in some trouble.
2: It's hard to say. Uh, I I don't know what the jury would have done. We the judge denied repeated motions we made to change the venue on that ground. What the judge did do is he allowed us to send a questionnaire to the jury and we got back you know, hundreds of these questionnaires. And it was evident that you know, the vast majority of the veneer had been poisoned against Mr. Gibson in particular. (laughs) And so then we had to spend three days trying to pick a jury of people who weren't poisoned in that fashion. My argument at the time was that once you have a community that is that deeply hostile, you can't presume that the ones who didn't say anything are just fine. Mm -hmm. And now we'll never know unless it comes through with the verdict of Lewis.
0: How much did you participate in the defense of the other uh, defendants
2: you know we're sitting there in the courtroom and and you know lawyers talk to each other during the trial but that was that was about it you know just uh, talking to each other about what we're going to do Are you okay with that that kind of thing
0: mm-hmm I noticed that one of the other attorneys brought up free speech in his arguments for his client, which it sounded like it hadn't come up before. I know that you have always thought this was a free speech issue as well, James Buchel. So can you talk a little bit about how what Antifa does on the streets of Portland to stifle that?
2: Well, you know, they have an explicit goal in in writing of what they call deplatforming uh speech which, with, with which they disagree. And reasons that remain a mystery to me. Uh, They have identified patriots attempting to limit government power as fascists' intent on increasing government power. I think this is because they're grossly misinformed, and they're led by some extremely evil people who are on the side of essentially increasing fascistic government power. And... And so they have the the the, the these forces. They are the street enforcers of just trying to shout down and abuse any contrary opinions. And the things that they continue to get away with, you know, um, invading prayer rallies, throwing people's you know amplifying equipment into the into the river, you know, attacking women and children. I mean, it is remarkable what they get away with under this administration of uh, of uh, Da Schmidt. and. it is to what is in substance a criminal gang
0: it is a criminal gang you fell out there just a little bit i know you're in a you're in downtown portland waiting for the verdict in another case and um but it is amazing that the district attorney and of course the all of official institutional portland allows this to go on they could stop it tomorrow and they don't
2: yeah it's it's a tragedy uh, i i You know, one of the sadder parts of the trial was when the prosecution got the detective up on the stand and it was, you know, did you try and were you able to identify this person? You know, were you able to identify that person? Were you able to identify the next person? And if this had been a full blown civil case, you know, we probably would have put on evidence that they never even really tried. But the judge regarded that as being irrelevant to the question of riot and something that could only be decided in, in subsequent proceedings about selective prosecution. So we never got to that point. But you know, they didn't really lift a finger to uh, try and identify and find any of the Antipo people responsible. And as to the couple that they identified, they made no effort to charge them or, or, or take any action whatsoever.
0: So selective prosecution for sure. Um, one of the other things, though, uh, for example, in the Mike Strickland trial, only two of the so-called victims in his case were identified. The rest they could not be identified except by that which they were wearing. I mean, how do you bring a charge against someone for people that they don't even know were victimized, or they don't even know? <laughs> well, period? you know,
2: Antifa appears to be Schmidt's people, and. He's, he's there to defend antifa
0: <laughs> so he's a defense attorney for the left yeah well, um anything else i i'm sure i've forgotten to ask you something and uh, you're such a smart guy i'd like you to just you know tell me what i missed here in this case
2: no oh, it's, it's a it's a good day it's a good day for justice in portland it's uh it's it's almost almost restores a tiny bit of my faith in, in the system and and again i want to call out the judge for having the courage to do the right thing because there are other judge case um you know on the fence. oh yeah we'll find some evidence someday you know this is just fine <laughs> and uh, and uh, that wasn't the case here he was he was willing to look at this fairly and do what to, what so obviously had to be done
0: I mean I'm glad you're involving yourself in these cases
2: well it's time you know I, I did not take the laboring oar on a lot of it uh, that was Mr. Angus Lee a young attorney out of Vancouver You know, I'm trying to help pass the baton on to the next generation and and ease out into the sunset here, although it's harder to let go of things than I think.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your uh, your help with this particular case. I'm glad that somebody got some semblance of justice in Portland from um, the from one judge. (laughs) Maybe it's a start. Maybe it's a start. It's
2: a start. It's a start.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen. And give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs. And it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, Mischief Managed.